Welcome to Brain Nevat. We're delighted to be joined by David Boonin, and we're going to be talking about using AI to fight crime. David, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yeah, so in this thought experiment, you're a cop, and you come across a scene of mass looting. So there's some very big store, lots of broken windows. There's people clearly exiting the store, carrying big boxes of stuff, loading it up in vehicles, driving away at high speeds. But there are also lots of other people who seem to have just come there to go shopping and are just driving away because they're scared of what's going on. Anyhow, so you arrive at the scene and you see two vehicles heading away in opposite directions, both going well over the speed limit, and you can only go after one of them, okay? And they're clearly both speeding, so you're entitled to pull either one of them over for speeding, but you're kind of hoping that like when you pull them over, you're going to say, oh, yeah, what are all these televisions and computers doing in the car here? Okay. And to get things started, the only difference you notice between the two vehicles, one is a small sedan that has four people in it, and the other is a large van that has six people in it. And so again, you've got the right to chase either one, uh, hoping to catch a looter, a set of looters, but you can't chase both. So start with just the question of like, what should you do in that case? Okay. And it's not supposed to be a trick question. Like I think most people are going to be like, yeah, you should go after the van because that's got more people in it. If it turns out that they're guilty, you've got six looters instead of four. Some people might think maybe you should flip a coin or something. But I think at the least, virtually everyone's going to agree. It's like permissible to chase after the van just on the grounds that if you catch criminals, you're going to catch more rather than few. Okay. What I don't think people say when you ask them this question, at least it's never happened to me when I've asked this question, is, well, I can't answer the question until you tell me the race of the people in the vehicles. So I think that's evidence that people don't really think the race of the people in the two vehicles is morally relevant, but we can test that claim a little bit further by filling in some details. So I'm going to oversimplify because this is a hypothetical thought experiment. I want to make the math simple. So let's just assume everyone in this city is either white or black. Obviously that's an oversimplification. And let's assume the numbers break down nicely and precisely. 75% of the population is white and 25% of the population is black. Okay. And now I add these details about the two vehicles. The sedan that has four people in it, three of them are white and one of them is black. And the van that has six people in it, three of them are white and three of them are black. And then I ask, has this changed your view? Do you now think it would be impermissible? to chase after the van rather than the sedan on the grounds that the van gives you a chance of catching a larger number of criminals if it turns out that there are looters in the vehicle. And my semi-educated, semi-based unexperienced guess is like, no, that doesn't change people's views. They still think that it's okay to go after the van in that case. Right. So let's assume at least for a moment that's right. And let's assume you have like a pretty clear response to that case, like definitely okay to go after the larger vehicle rather than the smaller vehicle given those numbers. Okay, so why is that potentially significant? Well, in the city that I described, uh, the white-black ratio is 75-25, and that's exactly the ratio of white people to black people in the small sedan. So if you go after the small sedan, and let's say it turns out, yeah, they were speeding, but they weren't actually looting, you've imposed a burden on white people and black people 
at a rate that's precisely proportionate to their representation in the general population. But the van, remember, where three people were white, three people were black. If you go after them, and maybe it turns out, again, they were speeding, but it turns out they, they're polluting. 50% of the people you will have burdened are black, but only 25% of the city is black. So you will have burdened them at a rate that's just significantly disproportionate to their representation in the population. Okay. Now, the reason that's potentially significant is, again, if you share what I take to be a very widespread response to that case, the case can be used to provide, I think, a pretty powerful counterexample to a claim that otherwise I think initially sounds pretty plausible. And so the initially plausible sounding claim is the claim that it's wrong for the police to use tactics, even if those tactics successfully result in, let's say, a modest increase in catching criminals. It's wrong to do that if the burdens of the practice will disproportionately fall either on one racial group or perhaps a racial group that has been historically discriminated against or historically discriminated against in a certain sort of way. However, you sort of refine the tail end of the principle, as long as it applies to Black Americans in particular, so a minority that clearly has been unjustly discriminated against in many severe ways over a very long period of time, that principle is going to entail that it would be wrong uh, to chase after the van. And more generally, it would be wrong to have a practice or a policy that tells the police, whenever you're in a situation like this, you should go after the larger number of people, right? Instead, they should have a policy that says, go after the smaller number in any case where that the smaller group is more proportionately representative of the racial composition of the city as a whole. Okay. So, so you have this case and the case seems to provide, I think, a pretty strong counterexample to that principle. The reason that's significant, I guess, is sort of in the context of what you want to talk about today, I think is sort of twofold. So one is some people find that principle a very plausible way of arguing against racial profiling. Okay. So just you picture kind of the cop on the turnpike, he sees two speeding motorists go by and one is black and one is white. And he decides to go after the black motorist because he's got this belief that the black motorist is more likely to have illegal drugs or weapons in their car or something like that. So it's a one kind of argument against that form of racial profiling is to say that even if it turns out by hypothesis to slightly reduce crime, the burdens that it imposes are disproportionately borne by black Americans. Okay. So, so that argument against racial profiling has to be rejected if it really does commit us to this claim in the small sedan and large van case, and if that's an unacceptable claim. Okay, so I haven't yet said anything about artificial intelligence. People who are watching might be wondering, did I tune into the wrong episode? But the reason this is relevant now is, so the debate about racial profiling, obviously that's been going on for quite some time, but much more recently, there's been a debate about predictive policing, where you take a large set of historical crime data, feed it into some suitably trained computer system, and it spits out deployment recommendations and tells the police, if you really want to maximize efficiency, here are the places that are most likely to have criminal activity. Here are the times when they're most likely to have criminal activity. Redeploy your police according to these recommendations. Crime will go down. Okay. So that's what I'll mean by predictive policing. And that now we are talking about an AI-driven policing technique. Yeah. And I think far and away, the most common objection to this kind of new form of law enforcement is that it really is just old-fashioned racial profiling dressed up in fancy new clothes and then kind of given this veneer of objective respectability by the fact that it's computers making the decisions instead of people. But there's a very plausible case to be made for saying that the upshot of the algorithms, the recommendations produced, 
they're going to inherit all the racial bias that the historical crime data had and is infected by. And then there are some various more subtle arguments to the effect that they won't just inherit bias, but under certain pretty realistic assumptions, will actually exacerbate the bias. There are even scenarios in which they can introduce bias where there isn't actually bias in the initial data. So yeah, so I guess to bring a somewhat long story to a quick close, I hope most people think racial profiling is wrong. And the claim now is if, if you agree that racial profiling is wrong, then you should agree that this sort of newfangled predictive policing is also wrong. And in the book I'm currently working on, I have one chapter where I really want to kind of think this through. Like, is it true that there's a good argument that justifies the claim that racial profiling is wrong, even if you stipulate that it's modestly effective? And that if so, like, what is the best argument and does that argument successfully apply to the case of predictive policing? And I do want to emphasize it's still a work in progress, so I'm still thinking it through. But my working hypothesis for that chapter is perhaps somewhat counterintuitively, it turns out there isn't a good argument, I think, to show that racial profiling is wrong if we stipulate that it produces at least a modest reduction in crime. Uh, but in addition, I think for many of the arguments that have been given against racial profiling, even if they turn out to be successful, there are enough differences between racial profiling and predictive policing that you can't actually successfully extend the argument to predictive policing even if we stipulate that the results of using the predictive policing will be just as racially imbalanced as the results of using uh, the racial profiling. And then I guess the last thing I'll say, I really, I do want to emphasize, like you have to build in a bunch of idealizing assumptions. So in the real world, police treat suspects abusively. The courts uh, treat people unfairly. They subject them to unfair punishments for things that shouldn't be illegal in the first place and so forth. So in the real world, there are all sorts of reasons to think Anything that makes policing more efficient is actually bad, not good, okay? But it's not interesting to say that predictive policing is bad because, like, policing is bad, right? The question that I'm interested in is if you make these various idealizing assumptions, suspects will be treated respectfully, the laws are just and reasonable, the courts have just and reasonable decision procedures, and if people are convicted, they're just in reasonable sentences and so forth. Is it still the case that racial profiling would be wrong? Is it still the case that predictive policing is wrong? And I think that many people think the answer to both of those questions is yes. And my working hypothesis for now, at least, is that the answer to both is no. So I'm curious about a distinction that we might want to make when defining racial profiling. We might think as racial profiling de re or de dicto. Now, just before we started this conversation, Mark said we don't use a lot of philosophical jargon. So I'm going to just yeah, try and define, off yeah, <laughs> define what I mean. So de re means about the object and de dicto means a description which may or may not apply to this object. So racial profiling de re would be, I have the intention that I want to search the car with a higher proportion of black subjects. De dicto says, I want to search the car with more people in it that's the extent of my intention, but it just so happens that my intention best satisfies the car with a high proportion of black people. But that was not the original intention. That's an indirect consequence. Yes. Now, we might say that racial profiling that's direct is more plausibly impermissible than racial profiling that's indirect. So racial prof profiling that's de re seems more morally objectionable intuitively then racial profiling, that's de dicto. So maybe that will sway how this debate goes. Yeah, good. So let me make a couple of comments about that. So the first is to get clear about what the purpose of the example is and what it isn't. Okay. So suppose I said, 
it seems clear that you're allowed to go after the van, therefore racial profiling is permissible. Okay, that I think would be a bad argument. And one reason I think it would be a bad argument is precisely what you just said. Like there's a difference between the racial profiling case and the, the van and the sedan case in terms of, I would maybe put it slightly differently, but taking race into account directly uh, in the racial profiling case and just taking numbers into account directly and then it just being this kind of foreseeable side effect that you're going to disproportionately upward black people. Okay, so that would be a bad argument. I agree. The purpose of the example is much more limited and it's just to say, there's a problem with one particular argument against racial profiling, and that's the kind of fairness-based argument that just appeals to disproportionate burden as a reason to think that the practice is unacceptable. So I think it still remains a good objection to that argument, but I think what your question suggests is there are a bunch of other cases that will pose a problem. So anybody who believes in race-based affirmative action, for example, isn't going to be in a position to say that it's kind of like never okay to take race into account. So if the right is understood in this very strong way, that's going to be a problem for them. Even people who are critics of race-based affirmative action, let's say in college admissions and so forth, I think there are going to be other sorts of cases where they're going to think it's pretty clear that it's okay for race to be taken into account by the government even. So government-sponsored play. It can be okay to take race into account when making casting decisions, sending spies overseas, deciding who to deploy, taking into account the racial composition of the country that you're deploying them in. And then maybe the most significant problem, at least if we make this strong claim that like it's kind of never okay for the government to take race into account and you're doing so produces social benefits, is the use of race as part of the physical suspect description. So if somebody's seen fleeing the scene of a bank robbery and the witness gets a pretty good look at them and say they're roughly this tall and roughly this shape and this weight and have dark skin, then I think virtually everybody is in agreement that it's permissible for the government to broadcast that physical suspect description and to include the racial features in the physical suspect description and for the police then to be kind of extra scrutinizing people who fit that description who happen to be in the vicinity of the crime scene. But if we took seriously the claim that it's ne never okay for the government or for the police to take race into account directly when deciding how much scrutiny to subject people on the street, then we'd have to say you shouldn't be allowed to use race as part of the physical suspect description. So at least on the assumption that we're not willing to say that, uh, then at least that very strong version of the claim that there's a right against direct racial discrimination, I think is going to be an, an unsuccessful argument. And then I guess just the last thing I'll say quickly. So, so what I focused on here was that's going to be a reason to say that it's an unsuccessful argument against racial profiling. Uh, but even if you think it is a successful argument against racial profiling, you fight the bullet on these cases or you think there's some way of finessing them, you're not going to be able to make the move from racial profiling is wrong to predictive policing is wrong precisely because the distinction that you're drawing puts racial profiling on one side and predictive policing on the other side. Algorithms don't know anything about who was black and who was white. They don't know if he lives in what neighborhoods. They just sort of figure out, yeah, like based on past patterns, it's most likely that farms will occur in these particular times. So I wonder about this case. Let's say you've got a society where there's an equal split between men and women. And as the police officer, you can either go after the car full of men or the car full of women. You could say, well, yes, in relation to the society, I should flip a coin or I should alternate vehicles. Now one might say, you're asking, you're doing the wrong comparison. So what if your society is 50-50 split between men and women? What do the jails look like? 
And it'll be the case that 90% of the people in jail are men. And so therefore you have a reason to go after the men because the chances are that men commit more crimes than women. Now the men might respond, you shouldn't be treating me as a means to an end. Just because people who happen to share my genitalia commit more crimes doesn't mean that I committed a crime. And I feel aggrieved that you would assume that about me and you ought not to do that. So you've got the tension between these two things. Now, I wonder, in other words, whether there's a parallel in the race case. You might think that the reason why there's a disproportionate number of black people that are in prison is because you've got a systemically racist system and that it's not really representative of appetites for criminality. Or you could say, well, we could assume that maybe there's some of that, but to the extent that there is a disproportion like there is with sex, it's perfectly justifiable to deliberately go after people on the grounds of their race or their sex because we're more likely to yield the social good of locking up more criminals, even if we are using these people as a means to an end. Let's see. Boy, there was a lot going on there. Let me try to say a couple of things, but then I think you should follow up. So first, yeah, and I sort of wish I had clarified this at the outset. I definitely don't think that someone who's defending racial profiling uh, or someone who thinks that racial profiling turns out to be at least moderately offensive at reducing crime. Right. I definitely don't think that they need to be committed to any sort of claim about genetic differences between different races and some being more, more prone to, to criminality or whatever. So yeah, I think by far the most plausible explanation, if it does turn out to be the case that there are differential crime rates, right, is precisely because, again, at least in the U.S. context, which I know best, because of a long legacy of unjust treatment, Black Americans on average are doing less well in terms of things like education, income, savings, this sort of thing. And then it's, there are predictable correlations between lower education, lower income, and at least certain forms of criminal activity. Yeah, I think by far that would be the natural way to try to explain if it is the case that there are these differential crime rates. And then, yeah, I think that what that does is it, it suggests, and I took it this was at least part of the point of your set of comments, it suggests a kind of refining of a certain sort of objection that could be used against profiling, perhaps also against predictive policing. But then I guess the question for me is going to be like, let's get as clear as possible about what the new principle is that we're appealing to. And then let's ask, like, does that principle have unacceptable implications? And I think there were kind of two different possibilities that came out of your comments. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about each of them and then let me know what else you want to say. Right. So one would be to go back to something like the fairness-based argument that I started with, but, you know, really just hammer away the thought that, no, like, it's fine to do things as a, well, sorry, the mere fact in general that some practically efficient social policy would have a disproportionately negative aspect impact on some group, that by itself doesn't have to be a decisive objection. But in this very particular kind of case where past historical injustices are at least largely responsible for the fact that now it's the case that taking race into account can help us catch more criminals and so forth. Now there's a reason to say in that particular circumstance that the policy is wrong to use. Right. And then I guess one thing I'm inclined to say about that modified version of the case, well, I guess there's two things. So maybe this is partly going back to what you meant to suggest. I'm not quite sure. So one is, right. So that's still going to commit us to saying in my original example, you're not allowed to go after the van. Okay, you have to go after the sedan because if you go after the van, you're going to catch a disproportionately large number of black people who, by hypothesis now, are more likely to be engaged in looting because of past historical injustices. Now, some people might accept that result at that point. I have to acknowledge that. Um, 
I, I find that result very difficult to accept. And then the other one that I guess I'll just come back to is, again, the use of race as part of a physical suspect description. So in the United States, at least, they've been carrying out this national crime victimization survey every year for a number of years that the government has. So they surveyed victims of a certain range of fairly serious violent crimes where the victims survived, obviously, and were able to give a suspect description. And pretty regularly, the results are, roughly speaking, that the witnesses identify the suspect as Black at roughly twice the rate of Black Americans' representation in the population as a whole. So when you, may, when you allow the police to make use of race as part of a physical suspect description, you would then would be violating even this kind of narrowly tailored version of the, of the principle because what's going to happen is disproportionate to the representation in the population Black Americans are going to be in a state of subject to heightened scrutiny from the police because of, of an eyewitness description. And again, by hypothesis, this whole situation is in virtue of past historical injustices. And again, I do acknowledge some people, once they think that through, will come to the conclusion that actually the police shouldn't be allowed to use race as part of the physical suspect description, even if that means we, we crime goes up, we make it easier for criminals to get away. All I can really say at that point is, I mean, I found that result very difficult to accept. And then I guess the last thing is, right, so then the other part or one other part of some of what you were saying had more to do with the thought that the relevant comparison class should not be uh, the city as a whole or the precinct as a whole, but rather the prison population as a whole. So if the prison population is already disproportionately Black, then maybe in, in some sort of sense, we should be practicing affirmative action or maybe in reverse to try to get a more balanced uh, prison population and to go after the white suspects, even if there's a smaller number of them. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe I don't have too much to say about that beyond what I said about the first version of the principle. Again, I think it's going to commit us to saying, oh, I guess it would commit us to saying it's okay to use race as part of a physical suspect description if the suspect is white or Asian, if white and Asian Americans are underrepresented in the prison population, but it wouldn't be okay to make it easier to catch black offenders by pointing out that we have a black suspect on the loose, because that would be exacerbating the representation of black Americans in the prison population. Here's a further wrinkle that it does, it has nothing to do, I think, with the first version of the principle, but with the second version. If we really were concerned to try to make the prison population uh, come closer to being such that the black population in prison was just proportionate to the black population as a whole, then really I think what we should do is take race into account at, during the trial. Uh, the presumption of innocence should be uh, weaker for white defendants and stronger for black defendants. And perhaps every time the judge has discretion over sentencing, the black defendant should always get the minimum sentence and the white defender should always get the longest sentence because then you'll have more white people in the long term in prison. Now, I mean, again, it's possible that some people will just accept those implications. I can't really dismiss that possibility out of hand. But I guess speaking personally, and this is kind of like a big picture, I guess, methodological point, I find it really difficult to debate general principles of fairness and rights and justice and so forth without trying to sort of wrap my head around like, well, what exactly am I committing myself to if I accept it? And so I guess to me, if it turns out that I'm committing myself to white defendants having a weaker presumption of innocence, for example, at trials, yeah, that to me just seems like uh, evidence that we're on the, on the wrong track. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts. I like that you've drawn these comparisons with, let's say, racial profiling and affirmative action that's, that has a race-based strategy, is it seems that the 
race-based affirmative action proponent is going to have to bite a lot of other bullets. So in other words, if you think that you could have different levels of merit when you're allowing people into a university or into a job on yeah. the grounds that you think that justice requires that there is a perfect representation of the races and the sexes and the religions and whatever else it is in all fields, and that we should try and model our society so that it looks like that and we can do as much social engineering as we like, well, then you open up the floodgates. So why not just have a moratorium on arresting black people up until we get parity in the prisons? Why not have different rules for the races and say, well, you know what, we're going to make it really hard to convict you if you're black because we've got too many of you guys in prison and your honkies is not enough of you in prison. So let's yeah. try and make it really easy yeah. you know, throw yeah. the book at you. Yeah. And it seems like that, I think that idea, this is the interesting bit, is that a lot of people are going to say that's a completely repugnant idea. Other people say, Sounds great. Sign me up. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think there's a third possibility, though, which is that being a strong defender of affirmative action in hiring and college admissions and so forth doesn't actually commit you in any way to being a proponent of affirmative action in a sentencing, a conviction, for example. So I think if you can just block the move and say there's nothing arbitrary about supporting it in these contexts and not in those contexts, that then I don't think you have to gravitate toward either extreme. And I think to me, the natural way to think of it is, I mean, okay, so to lay my cards on the table, I'm inclined to think that race-based affirmative action is perfectly permissible in university admissions, hiring, and so on and so forth. Those are contexts where I don't really think that, for example, in the admissions or hiring context, that any applicant has a sort of right to have their application treated in a certain sort of way. So I don't think I have a right to go to this school or I have a right to this job, and I don't think I have a right to only have my individual qualifications considered and so forth, because they're making decisions about how to distribute various goods that I don't think that I have an independent sort of right to. On the other hand, I think it's highly plausible to say that the government's not allowed to throw me in jail unless they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that I broke a law that's the sort of law that justifies throwing people in jail, something like that. And to then engage in some kind of affirmative action uh, at that level that involves, in the example I gave, let's say, depriving white people of the presumption of innocence that black people would get, then I think you just have an independent, like that's what's objectionable about it. It's not that it's affirmative action or that it's trying to produce a more uh, racially ideal uh, mix of people, it's because there's a, a, an independent right that people have that's being violated. Now, you don't have to hold that to you, okay? So I do agree, one could have a consistent view on which grocery stores should be required to charge white people more for can of beans than black people, and courts should be required to sentence white people to longer sentences than black people for identical crimes and raise the bar for evidence against. You could have a consistent view that in every aspect of society, the scale should be tilted, again, in my oversimplifying everyone's white or black scenario, in favor of the black population and against the white population. So that can be a consistent view. But I guess my point is, I don't think there's anything in particular about endorsing race-based affirmative action in the familiar context, hiring, admissions, and so forth that sort of commits you to going there. So if someone's willing to go there, then yes, I, I concede, as I said before, they're not going to find my objections to this argument persuasive. And so, yeah, if anything, yes, then they'll think we should engage in racial profiling, but it's profiling against white people. Like we need to just catch more white people until there are enough white people. In, right. So yes, so that, that I think is right. But I don't think run-of-the-mill defenders of race-based affirmative action in the more traditional venues should be talked into biting those bullets, I guess I would say. 
I know Mark's probably chomping at the bit, but I'm going to preempt one of his possible objections. So it, Thank you. it might, it might, <laughs> it, it might be the case that, that in the university hiring scenario, you're not eliminating someone's right. So no one has a right to be admitted to university. Whereas in the court case where you're deciding on the guilt or innocence of a particular party, everyone has the right to innocence until proven guilty. And so you're violating that right in, in, a, in an affirmative action scenario in court. But perhaps affirmative action just wouldn't be applied that way. So it wouldn't be applied to the awarding of a guilty or innocent verdict. It would just be awarded in sentencing. So it would okay. just... It would yep. be a mitigating factor. And there, it seems you really do have parity with the affirmative action case at university. But we think that still in the court scenario, it's repugnant. And so it might present quite a nice counterexample to affirmative action at the university level. So that's my first objection. And okay. I'm just going to raise a second one. This is something that you raised earlier, is that AI and predictive policing, it might not just treat black people unfairly, but it might entrench and magnify inequality. So you can imagine that suppose based on, on incorrect and biased data, police are driven by the AI to search certain black neighborhoods. And because they're in those neighborhoods, they're more likely to find crimes in those neighborhoods. And because they're more likely to find crimes in those neighborhoods, those crimes filter back into the database, which the AI references. The AI then pushes police back into those neighborhoods in future, which then again creates further impetus for the AI to drive police into those neighborhoods. It's similar to a recommendation algorithm for a music video or for a YouTube video. The more it's listened to, the more likely it is that yeah. the AI is going to want it to be listened to. So it, it generates this, because you've got a false start, it generates this entrenched inequality or disadvantage. Yeah, good. So let me say a little bit about both of those comments. So the first one, yeah, the dialectic here has become a little bit peculiar. So I, I said earlier, I myself think that race-based affirmative action in admissions and hiring is perfectly fine, but that's not really part of my argument, you know, that there's problems with arguments against racial profiling and predictive policing. There are other cases like the case of using race as part of the physical suspect description, which I think are much less controversial. So if you end up thinking there's just a knockdown reductio against race-based affirmative action in college admissions, that's fine. Or maybe that could be a subject for a different discussion. But if you think that, right, then, okay, we're just, we'll just focus on other cases where you do think it's okay to take race into account, like case of physical suspect descriptions, casting plays, other things like that. But I guess I'll also just add, I mean, I, I can see in a sense that your suggestion that they just take race into account at sentencing rather than during the trial, it avoids violating the particular right that I talked about. But I guess I'll just say quickly, and then I, this is all I'll say about that. It still seems to me there's a pretty fundamental difference between the two cases. And so you start by asking, like, why do we have a public university? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose of the public university is to educate citizens for future leadership or whatever. Many of us think right? That having a more racially diverse campus community will promote that goal. Okay. So if I'm a pretty highly qualified white guy and I don't get in and a black person gets in and maybe their grades and test scores were a bit lower than mine, if that promotes the goal that society has with the universities, I don't really feel like I've had a right to go to that school sort of violated. Okay. So 
what's the purpose of putting people in prison? Okay, so on the face of it, at least, the purpose has something to do with justice and retribution and deterrence and whatever it is, or moral education or repentance. There's all sorts of theories about what the justification for putting people in prison is. But whatever the justification is, I'm pretty sure it's not to put together a group of racially diverse people so that we can produce some sort of outcome. So, so I guess I would still stick with my original response that like, if someone's watching this video and they really strongly believe in affirmative action, race-based affirmative action at universities and employment, I would stick with my original response. You don't feel you have to be committed to these extreme implications about the justice system. But then if I'm, again, if I'm wrong about that, we can just scrap the affirmative action example. As long as there are other cases we race can be taken into account. I think that the problems with some of these arguments we make. And then, yeah, I guess I'll try to be briefer with respect to the second set of comments. Right. So this kind of spiraling that the AI can generate uh, so that the more you go, the more you send the police to the black neighborhoods, the more that they'll find crimes there. And then the more the data will skew toward the black neighborhoods in the future. I mean, that's one very good reason to suspect that the algorithm is not actually going to be reducing crime. Okay. Because if you set things up so that like, I'm assuming like at least a somewhat segregated city or that all the cops are just going to the black neighborhoods and the white people are like, Hey, we can do whatever we want. There's no enforcement here. Like overall, the crime rates are going to go up. So I'm only really interested in the scenario where the AI actually does a better job of deploying police where it actually turns out that they can bring down crime rates than whatever the human-based alternative is. And so I think realistically, that's going to provide a check against that kind of spiraling feature at some point. If there's going to be enough crime starting to take place elsewhere, that the AI is going to have to sort of recalibrate. So assuming a somewhat racially segregated city, so they're going to be predominantly black neighborhoods, predominantly white neighborhoods, it's only going to work out to actually lower crime if, and also to be disproportionately sending police to the black neighborhoods, if there is something about those neighborhoods, population density, the nature of the businesses that are located there, lots of parking garages that are easy targets for car theft, whatever, there, there actually is something about those neighborhoods that is, is driving a higher crime rate. So that would be my main response to the second set of comments. So in the case where we've got the AI that isn't programmed by any kind of racist or sexist, but it could have two different objectives. The one is maximize catching criminals, and the other one is have strive for racial justice in the sense that the people that are apprehended will match the race representatives in society. And we yeah. will aim to kind of ensure that the number of people that are in prison or before judges match this racially representative. It seems like you would get different behavior from the police directed by the AI with those different goals. And, and, and we get different recommendations from non-AI also. Yeah, for sure. Yes, right, exactly. You can imagine the police chief just says, this is what we're doing. These are the areas where I think there are more crimes going on. Have at it. Turns out particular racial groups live there well, so be it indirect consequence. And the other right. one is... Look, yes. we don't have enough honkies in prison. Like just, we're yes. moratorium. No, no more arresting Mexicans. We're yes, just I going agree. after the honkies. And so we get our numbers up and we've got racial justice. Yeah. And we can yep. Now, if you've got these twin goals, either in the human doing it or the AI doing it, uh, how do we adjudicate between those two goals? Are they both fair goals to go for? Are they flip a coin goals? Or do we think that the one is better than the other? Yeah, so I guess I'll give a two-part answer. So the first part is, again, I think the dialectic has become kind of interesting here because my, 
I started out with this hypothesis that there aren't any good arguments against racial profiling. It seems to me that what you're offering here is an argument in defense of racial profiling. It just happens to be an argument in defense of profiling against white people and in favor of black people. So at least on the face of it, all the other arguments against racial profiling that I'm aware of, they would all be argued, at least most of them, they would also be arguments against profiling, racially profiling on, on any sort of race. So why should I have to answer that question? <laughs> like, yeah, so maybe it turns out racial profiling is justified and it just turns out it's this form of racial profiling that has to do with going after white people disproportionately. I didn't say anything that was inconsistent with that point. So that's that, I guess that's part of my response. But then I guess with respect to the, but those I'll say, okay, I don't have to answer that question, but I'll try to answer it anyhow, fair enough. Yeah, I guess I'll go back to something I said earlier and different philosophers have different approaches to philosophical methodology. I myself find it difficult to know how to answer a question like, which is more just, let's say, aiming to minimize the extent to which innocent people are victimized by crime or aiming to maximize the extent to which those who are convicted of crimes match the racial demographics in the population. I, I find it difficult to really kind of think, I, I don't have a Rawlsian theory. Well, let's go behind the veil and figure out what we'd say. I, I don't want to appeal to like a particular social contract theory, utilitarian theory, whatever. So again, I, I kind of find myself not knowing what to say other than to kind of work through what are the implications here. And again, to me, a fairly straightforward implication is again, at least in the U.S. context, we'll definitely have to abolish the use of race as part of the physical suspect description, uh, because again, that disproportionately feeds more uh, Black people into the prison population insofar as witnesses identify the suspect as Black at roughly twice their representation in the population as a whole. And I guess when I picture kind of a concrete case like that, there's, I, I don't want to get too graphic or extreme, and I would worry about appealing to prejudices or whatever, but you know, there's an offender on the loose who's committing a series of some kind of violent assault against innocent people, including against innocent Black people. Like, let's not act as if Black people aren't also benefited when crime rates go down, right? So, and one thing we could do is like, we, we've got a description of this person based on several people who were victimized by them. Let's like circulate this description. Um, yeah, when it comes down to sort of the concrete case, then I guess I just sort of have a fairly strong reaction. Like, yeah, it's much more important to protect the innocent people from being victimized than it is to kind of socially engineer the prison population by saying, well, we can still tell you that it's a man and he's about this tall and he's about this build, but we can't tell you what race he is because not giving you that fact, even though it makes it easier for us to catch the offender, is going to produce a disproportionate result in the prison population. So when it when I try to think it through that way, yeah, then I guess I think, no, <laughs> reducing crime. Again, on the assumption, which I'm making here, that the kinds of crime we're trying to reduce really are forms of behavior that uncontroversially we want to reduce. I'm not talking about marijuana possession and loitering and this kind of thing, right? But in vandalism, assault, rape, murder, theft, this sort of thing, then yeah, I guess that's how it seems to be. But I guess I just want to emphasize, I don't have a grand theory that tells me that, and that's just sort of like, when I try to identify the implications of these different approaches, one just strikes me as quite a bit more reasonable than the other. And of course, since I think I'm a reasonable person, then I kind of attribute to other people well, that's how it'll strike them. And so that's argumentatively at least how I try to proceed. So it seems that AI could be used in apprehending suspects, but it could also be used in how we sentence people that we found to be guilty. So 
It could be the case, for example, that there are a bunch of features about that person or about repeat offenders that we could feed into the AI and it could assist the judge in determining what the optimum sentence would be. But given the nature of how AI operates, it might not be apparent to the judge why a higher sentence was recommended by the system. In other words, the way that our legal system works in South Africa is that a judge has to write a judgment out. They've got to explain why you're guilty for these reasons, and then they've got to say, well, we think that you should get X many years behind bars for these reasons, because of the nature of who you are, because you're, you've done this crime before, because the case law sort of recommends something like this, because whatever it is. Whereas the AI just says, give the guy 10 years, and that might be the best way of reducing repeat offenders, but we don't really know why. So there's this opaqueness problem with using it. Yeah. What's your view on that? Yeah, good. So that's an excellent question. And yeah, again, I know the U.S. context better than I know other contexts, but at least here in the United States, yeah, this is far from a hypothetical case. So there's, excuse me, widespread use of algorithms to make predictions about recidivism or likely recidivism of offenders used to make, used to help judges make decisions about bail as well as sentencing, parole boards making decisions about parole, probation, and so forth. Right. So I mean, many people do object to those also on racial bias grounds, and I think we would then just end up replicating the discussion we just had. But right, there are two different sorts of reasons that the judge might be in a position where they cannot give any explanation to the defendant about why the algorithm said you're a high risk to the community. One is sometimes these algorithms are, again, at least in the U.S. context, they belong to private corporations and they're proprietary trade secrets. And so there's this well-known Relatively well-known case, Loomis versus Wisconsin. If you read anything about this, sometimes under the term risk assessment tools, you'll probably come across the example of Loomis versus Wisconsin. Right. So in that case, right, the judge gave him the maximum sentence for some relatively minor crimes. And the lawyer wanted to, well, I guess probably Loomis too, but yeah, the lawyer, why are we getting this maximum sentence? And the judge explicitly said part of the reason was this algorithm, uh, C-O-M-P-A-S, I forget off the top of my head what it stands for, COMPASS, says you're high risk to reoffend. Well, why does it say that? In this case, the judge had to say, I don't know, because the company that owns the software won't share it with us, so I, I couldn't tell you. So that's one kind of scenario. But then the other is just using more advanced forms of artificial intelligence where the machine learning generates a model that's just unfathomably complex. And even the programmers themselves, they could show you the software if you want, but even they don't understand this model that it came up with is unfathomably complex. All we know is it does an amazingly good job of accurately predicting which people will and which people won't reoffend within two years of the assessment based on feeding it data about past crimes, age, what was your age at your first offense, it's total number of years served at et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so a lot of people think that you have a right to an explanation of the basis of the judge's decision to sentence you for the maximum, let's say in this case. And if so, then it looks like using these opaque algorithms violates this right to an explanation. Now, of course, just to clarify, and then I'll say a little bit more about my view. In one sense, there's nothing stopping them from giving an explanation. So the judge can say, my explanation is, I think dangerous offenders should get the maximum sentence and you're a dangerous offender. That's my explanation, right? So really what they need is an explanation of the steps that led to that premise of that argument, I guess I would say. Okay. So if there is such a right in that sense, then yeah, what would follow is that it would be wrong for the courts to use these algorithms 
even if, right, using them helps them make more accurate decisions and helps keep them reduce quantum and so forth. Yeah. And so basically, so I have another chapter where I'm working on my view about this kind of argument. And yeah, so my basic view is a strong skepticism about the existence of this right. So I kind of have been developing kind of a positive argument for the claim that there's no such right. And then I've been trying to sort of defend that view against what I take to be the common arguments, or at least the ones that I've come across so far in defense of the claim that there is. So yeah, I'll, maybe I'll just, I'll say a little bit, of, just make sure I'll say a little bit about just my positive argument and see where the discussion goes. Yeah. Okay. So basically the positive argument I'm developing is kind of a two-step argument. And so again, I think of it in the U.S. context, because that's the one I'm most familiar with, but I'm happy to try to broaden the discussion. So in the U.S. at least, it's very common that if you're accused of a crime, that you're put on trial with the jury of your peers making the decision. And if the jury then says, we find you, find the defendant guilty, the judge says, thank you for your service and dismisses the jury. And the jury's decision that you're guilty rather than innocent is also entirely opaque to you. If you thought your lawyer made some good points during the trial and like established reasonable doubt about your guilt and you kind of think like, yeah, I think I'm going to win this case. And then that jury says you're guilty. Absolutely no explanation given. Like they didn't believe my witnesses. They didn't believe my alternative story, whatever it is. So, so, so that's opaque. But virtually no one, I think, at least that I've been able to encounter in the philosophical and legal literature, thinks that feature of the jury system, again, the feature on which once the jury delivers its verdict, they're just dismissed and free to leave. Virtually no one seems to think that violates the defendant's rights. But if we thought the defendant had a right to get an explanation of why they were found guilty, then I think what we would think is the rights are being violated. Basically, everyone who's ever been found guilty by a jury has had, had their rights violated, right? And moreover, I think what we would think is the state would be obligated, at least if it uses a jury system, to provide the defendant with something like an anonymized transcript of the jury deliberation so they could see, oh, here's why they ended up finding me guilty. And notice, in other contexts where we think doing something or not doing something would violate a person's rights, then we think like we shouldn't violate their rights, even if violating their rights would produce a somewhat better social outcome, right? So even if providing an anonymized transcript of the jury deliberations would make the deliberations a little bit less accurate, Let's say because jurors would be more anxious because they'd be aware that what they said was going to be reported even if anonymously. Uh, if we really thought that the defendant had a right to an explanation of the basis of the jury's decision, then we have to say, well, sorry, we just got to suck it up and we got to give them the transcript. Even if it means a few more guilty people are going to get free and a few more innocent people are going to go to jail, whatever, we just got to do this because the right to an explanation is more important than just getting the most accurate verdict. And so I, I take it, it's just... To go back to my mouth, why do I, when I did a nice concrete case that I sort of feel fairly comfortable, I know that's not right. Okay. So people put on trial don't have a right to force the jury to give an explanation of the basis of the steps in their decision-making. I think virtually everybody agrees with that as far as I've been able to tell. Why is that so important? Well, because the reason that people give for saying that there's supposed to be a right to get an explanation of your bail decision or your parole decision or your sentencing decision is because these decisions are being imposed on you by the state and they have potentially serious harmful consequences for you. But all of that is at least as true in the case of the jury's decision. In fact, typically it's much more true in the jury's decision because typically being found guilty is really what's responsible for most of the harm. Like being denied bail, okay, that's bad. But you know, if you're found guilty, then like all the downstream consequences of that 
are extremely serious. So yes, I, I'm calling that at least tentatively the opaque jury argument. And again, the basic idea is if there really were a right to an explanation of the steps and the reasoning that led to the decision in the bail, sentencing, probation, and parole cases, if there really were such a right, then there would be a right that defendants have to have the jury explain the steps in its reasoning decision. But I don't really think people think that. Therefore, there isn't this right in the other context. And if there isn't this right in the other context, then the opacity of these algorithms is no more a problem than is the opacity of the jury, I would say. So I wonder whether there's two possible objections one could make. The one I know you're going to find unconvincing, but as South Africans, we're not big fans of the jury system. And yeah. we might want to say, well, so much the worse for juries. This is a yeah. reduction against juries. Yeah. Can I say something about that before you? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I have to say, so Mark and I have met online in discussion, and I have to admit this was a blind spot in, in my thinking. And I've tried to be clear when I talk about this and in my writing that, like, I'm mostly looking at this from a U.S. perspective. Yeah. So I, I was surprised and um, I don't know if I'd say shocked, but a, a little more than just surprised by this, even though I think maybe I knew this from one or two stories, but in any event. So yeah, so I guess I have had to think about that a bit more. And I guess what I want to say is this, like, right, so if you have a legal system, I guess I want to break it down into two parts. So the first is like the question, is it better to have juries decide guilt or innocence, or is it better to have judges decide guilt or innocence? Okay. And that's an interesting question. And I can see different arguments in different directions, but I wouldn't want my position to have to like rest on you know, the claim that like, oh yeah, it's definitely better to have juries make the decisions than the judges. Okay. So let's assume like there's nothing wrong and maybe there's something positively good about instead having judges make the decisions. Okay. So then there's the second question. If we're going to have judges make the decisions, should we require the judges to give an explanation of the steps and the reasoning that led to their deciding that the defendant was guilty or should we not do that? Okay. So I guess I asked myself, first of all, I haven't had like a ton of time to think about this. But, you know, I asked myself, like, what reason could I give for thinking like, yeah, it would be better to have the judge have to give reasons. And to me, the obvious answer seems to be, well, I'm going to feel more confident that we're getting accurate results if the judge has to give an, a justification for their verdict. Okay. Uh, if that's true, if requiring judges to give an explanation of the basis of their decision leads to more accurate decisions, then yeah, I think that's a great reason to say, yeah, let's require the judges to do that. Okay. But notice that's totally consistent with my opaque jury argument, right? Because the opaque jury argument is an argument about cases where you make the decisions less accurate by having the more transparent decision-making procedure, and you make the decisions more accurate by having a more opaque decision-making procedure. So in other words, just to be clear about this, I don't want this to sound arbitrary, Nobody's going to be defending the use of these algorithms if they're actually less accurate than human parole boards and human judges and so forth. So we're only sort of interested in the question if they're more accurate, right, but they're opaque, does the opacity count against them? Okay. So, so right. So then I guess I asked myself, and again, I'm not really fully versed in the South African legal system, but I asked myself, so if we do have a system where judges make the decisions, not juries, and we're choosing between forcing the judges to give an explanation of the basic of the verdict and not. But suppose by hypothesis, right, we know that if we force the judges to make their reasoning explicit to the public, by hypothesis, we know 
that this will result in at least somewhat less accurate verdicts. Okay. So you'd have to make up your own. So they'll pander to the public or whatever it is. Okay. If by hypothesis that would be the case, then I ask myself, well, is there still some other reason that we would want to require the judge to make the steps in the reasoning process explicit, even at the risk of creating worse verdicts? And at least so far, I guess I would say, I haven't come up with such a reason and I haven't really seen one presented, but I realize that's not a proof that there isn't such a reason. But to the extent that my hypothesis is there would be strong support for the kind of system that you described because there would at least be a presumption that helps secure more accurate verdicts, then it's not a problem for my argument. But again, if there's some argument for saying, no, it's so important that the defendant be given the reasoning that they shouldn't give them the reasoning, even if that makes the verdicts less accurate, then I would obviously I would need to hear what the reason was. But if there is such a reason, that would be a problem for my conception. Yeah. So let me add in something here. A very good reason for why you want reasons is so that the appeal court can assess those reasons. So I've got a case at the moment where we've launched an appeal. The judge gave us reasons for why we lost. And we can assess those reasons and say, ah, you've misapplied the law to the facts, or you discounted evidence that you ought not to have. And an appeal court can look at that and say, I agree with you, those are incorrect reasons or not. If you have an opaque system where the judge just says guilty, innocent, and that's it, there is nothing for an appeal court to do on the merits. They right. could maybe talk so, about the procedures yeah. and things so like that. That's a nice, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's, I think, a nice specific example of a reason that might be given for suspecting that in general, opaque systems will be less accurate, right? So if it's the case that opaque systems are going to prevent appeals from taking place and that and preventing appeals from taking place is going to be a reason to think that they're less accurate, then again, that doesn't really touch my argument because I'm only concerned with the question of whether there's a right that's violated when the opaque systems are more accurate. Now, it's interesting. I would have to think more about this. Obviously, in the American jury system, the fact that the jury is not required to explain how they came to their conclusion Obviously, that doesn't prevent appeals from taking place in the American system, but right. I mean, if the jury was just dumb or something, but there was no, the judge didn't make any mistakes in terms of what evidence they admitted or didn't admit and so on and so forth, there's not really going to be much work for an appeal to do. But the fact that we can still have appeals in the jury system as practiced in the U.S., would I think it would be some evidence that opacity doesn't have to count against accuracy in the long run. But again, maybe not much. So again, if there's a good argument to show that opaque processes in the long run can't produce the most accurate results, then that's a kind of pragmatic reason not to use these algorithms if they're too opaque. But again, the objection to the use of them that I'm concerned with in the chapter that I'm working on is not meant to be a pragmatic objection. It's meant to be a principled objection that there's a right that people have to be given an explanation of the basis of the uh, judgment. And I didn't say this before, but I guess I'll, I'll say now, like when I first read about the Loomis case, I, oh my God, that's crazy. Like, of course he's got a right to an explanation. And so I think it's highly plausible, at least on the face of it, to think that there's a principled objection. And to me, again, at least it's, it's just once I start thinking about, well, what does that commit me to? Well, it seems to commit me to this view about the juries, but that seems really unacceptable. And again, also it seems to commit us to saying that we should use the less accurate rather than more accurate, even just to have an explanation to give. That doesn't seem right. So, so, so yeah, I mean, with respect to that objection and my response to that objection, again, I think any reason that can be given for thinking that opacity is bad for accuracy is going to be kind of beside the point. I think there's this problem, which is that 
there's a difference between determining guilt or innocence and being able to work out whether you got it right or not versus determining sentence and working out whether that person is going to reoffend. So they're just very different feedback loops. Yeah. When we're assessing whether the person reoffends, we can just go and look at a whole bunch of data. You can right. say this kind of yeah. person is more likely to reoffend for yeah. these reasons. In yeah. the case where your system imprisons people and they're innocent, and we don't really have a feedback mechanism to work out whether they're innocent or not, because yeah. we've never got any reasons, right. it's not clear to me that you can prove well, the judges were getting it right through the guilty, no reasons, or the AI was getting it right. And what you've yeah. done is build up yeah. a case for sentencing, but I don't think you've built up a case for opacity in guilt determination. So there's a big difference between predicting recidivism and figuring out whether someone's guilty. There's a big difference between the two in terms of the conditions under which we could test who's doing an accurate job. Okay, that definitely seems right. But notice that cuts both ways, right? It cuts with respect to the AI case, but it cuts equally with respect to the judge case. So suppose you say, as I think commonsensically sounds probably right, that, oh yeah, the system where the judges have to give the reasons produces more accurate verdicts than the system where they don't. Well, how are we going to test that claim? I mean, really, the only way we could test it would be if we had independent knowledge of who actually was guilty and who actually was not guilty. And then we found out, do judges more uh, often than not, do, do judges get the right verdict more often when they're forced to give a reason or when not? Now, I think it's a very plausible hypothesis that if we were able to perform that experiment, the system where we force the judges to give a reason would do better. But like the very same circumstances that make it extremely difficult to put it mildly to test the AI version or the opaque jury case, the same circumstances are going to make it extremely difficult in the judge case. I think the best we can do is just kind of have hypothetical examples sort of speculate, which is why, excuse me, from my point of view, uh, again, it's very fortunate that my argument doesn't commit me one way or the other to the question of which is more efficient. So again, if in the long term opacity is less accurate or we're just not able to come up with sufficient evidence that it is accurate, then we've got pragmatic reasons to not go with opacity, right? And that would be equally true with respect to the predictions about the use to make decisions about bail, probation, parole, sentencing, and so forth. That, if that is right. But again, I'm just concerned, since I just, it's a very important question. I'm concerned with the principled question, not the pragmatic question. Is there some right that's being violated when the judges take the predictions made by these opaque algorithms into account when making decisions about bail or sentencing or parole or probation? And again, I think the answer is no, because, I mean, there's other things one could say, but the main thing is because I think it would imply this further right to an explanation of the steps of the decision-making in the case of guilt. And I think even if we could know for sure that one system was more accurate than the other, we would not say that the defendant should go, that the system should go with the transparent system just so the defendant gets an explanation of the decision basis, even if by hypothesis that would make things worse in terms of accuracy. So. I wonder whether you've baked the question in setting up the case. And this is an expansion of Mark's quibble here. So I can understand what you mean when you say that the AI can accurately predict whether the prisoner will commit the crime again or some future crime. Yeah. What I can't understand is what accuracy means in the case of a guilty or innocent verdict. So what exactly would that mean? Would it mean we're asking whether X killed Y? 
whether that well, event. We're asking, yeah. So, I mean, strictly okay. speaking, so yeah, if it's a murder case, I mean, strictly speaking, it would be something like, did X kill Y? And if so, was it not self-defense and was it not whatever? So there'd be some description of that, but yeah. So maybe the simplest way to put it would be like this. So suppose there's an omniscient God and from time to time, God will talk to some representative of the legal system or whatever. And so you run an experiment and you have two, two different sets of courts. Maybe you divide the country in half or you randomize in some way or whatever. And half the time you make either the jury or the judge, whoever the decider is, you make them give an explicit explanation of the basis of their decision and the other half don't. And then you find out, well, actually there, and then you just ask God, right? In each of the cases, how many times did they get it right? And it's not, if you ask God, what do you mean by accurate? Like, yeah. Did they do what the law charged them with doing? And was it true that there were no mitigating factors as the law defined it, et cetera, et cetera? And so then again, you can, and again, you can't do this really, but this is the way to sort of test the theory, right? What would you say if God told you, actually, all these years you've been laboring under the impression that forcing the judges to give an explanation of their verdicts increases the likelihood that they reach the correct results. But actually what's been happening is they've been pandering to the public in various ways and there've been more false positives and more false negatives. God has assured us that this is the case. So going forward, do we still want to force judges or juries right, to explain the basis of their verdicts, knowing that we'll be increasing the number of false positives and false negatives? Or do we go with the system that, again, at least in, in the United States and many other systems that have a jury system, which is like, no, like what you, you assure the jury that, you know, you don't have to have any contact with this person once the trial is over and you don't have to give any interviews and we're not going to have any well reporting the jury deliberations. And it turns out that makes for better verdicts, even though it also makes for complete opacity from the, the defendant's point of view. And then, yeah, I guess my inclination is <laughs> wrong inclination is to say, like, I just don't feel the force of the thought that there's some right to an explanation that's so strong that it would trump the considerations of getting a more accurate jury verdict. And then I should also maybe just, well, I'll ask for the quick point, because I could see somebody responding by saying, well, not that proves there's no right to an explanation, just proves there's also a right to an accurate verdict, and the accurate verdict right trumps the right to an explanation. And that, that may well be right. But notice that's not a move that the critics of opaque algorithms can make, because then you'd have to say the exact same thing about the opaque algorithms in the other context, right? So like, yeah, there's a prima facie right to an explanation, but the right to getting an accurate decision trumps that right now. So yeah, I just wanted to make that point too. So, so I agree with your intuition that in the God case, I would want God being the arbiter. I, in the God case, if God perfectly understood our law and God had perfect omniscience over over the actions that are committed. Yeah. I think you're right that we'd want that kind of society. But here's okay. the problem. Here's the nub. Here's the issue. The issue is the AI is not God, not just in its level of accuracy. Let's assume it's 100% accurate. Yeah. The problem is the AI doesn't understand the law. The AI can perfectly predict, let's say, whether or not I killed X. Yeah. But what the AI cannot do, and this is where my quibble with the term accuracy comes in, is the AI can't know whether killing X constitutes guilt under yeah. our law. So, so that's an excellent reason to say that we shouldn't use AI to make decisions about whether someone's guilty. But nothing in my argument suggests that we should use AI for that, right? So I'm defending the use of AI 
to make predictions about recidivism that judges can then take into account when making decisions about bail, sentencing, parole, probation, and so forth. And so, yeah, no, I think for the foreseeable future and maybe for the forever future, you're not going to get an AI that's better than a juror. But if we ever did, again, I mean, I would find it extremely difficult to say, like, there's this, a clear reason not to use them. But again, I think for my purposes here, like, I always want to sort of emphasize what are the things I'm committed to? And then I defend those. And if there are other things I'm not committed to, I'm still sort of sort of happy to entertain them. But I'm not committed to the view that it would be a good idea to use AI to make guilt decisions, right? The view is that we don't need God to have evidence of the accuracy rate of pure predictions. Where that this was the basis of the question that you and Mark were both pushing, right? So you can just have it. Here's a human parole board. Let's look at 10,000 people where they said, oh, this person won't reoffend within two years of release. This person will reoffend within two years of release. And then here's 10,000 people that the AI made predictions about. And we can just look at the people when they were released, which ones, and again, it's not that perfect knowledge. Some people get away with farms that we don't know that, but on the whole, right, that should even out between the two samples. So you might get evidence that like the algorithm is making more accurate predictions than the parole board, okay? Well, maybe the parole board would be able to give an explanation of its misguided decision in a way that the algorithm wouldn't if it's proprietary or it's super unfathomably complex. But again, the claim is just that like, that doesn't mean we're violating the defendant's rights if we use the more accurate method. And again, none of that commits me to saying that we should also replace juries with robots. But your jury argument no, no longer goes through. No, I completely disagree with that. The jury argument says that there's not a right to an explanation of the basis of the decision, okay? And that if there were a right to an explanation of the basis of a decision in the other cases, there would be a right to an explanation of a basis of the decision in this case, okay? And that just rests on the plan that the reason people give for thinking that there's a right to a basis of a decision in the other cases is that it's a decision being coercively imposed by the state and that can be significantly harmful to the defendant. But those features of those cases equally apply, again, if not apply even more so in the case of decisions about guilt. So, so that, I don't think it poses any problems to the use of the jury that I'm making. Again, I'm making use of the jury in a very limited context, right, to justify the claim that there isn't a right to an explanation of the basis of a government's decision just because the government is going to impose it on you and it's going to impose potentially serious harms on you. And I think that the OPEC jury argument succeeds, even if we'll never in reality know whether or not, right, again, forcing judges to give verdicts, explanations makes them more accurate because we don't need to know that. All we need to know is what's our moral intuition about the question. Would we continue to insist that they give us an explanation if we knew God came down and told us, right, that all we're doing is we're making the verdicts less reliable, right? And I, to the extent that we say, no, we wouldn't do that. I think that's all that I need. So I think the way I understand your argument charitably is to say, if you think that juries aren't a problem, then you shouldn't have a problem with AI because they're similar in the way they operate. I think I was too quick to agree with what you said. I didn't realize you were putting that much weight on the jury. So no, I guess what I would say is if we agree that regardless of whether we have juries decide guilt or we have judges decide guilt, if we agree that it's not a problem to have their decision-making opaque, if that's what it takes to make it more accurate, right? 
if we agree with that, then we should agree, right? That in the case of the use of these algorithms to help make decisions about bail probation, sentencing, and so forth, that the fact that they're opaque also should not be a problem if, by hypothesis, that leads to more accurate decisions. That I agree with, yes. Yeah, so I want to make a couple of moves. The one is to say that we don't just care about accuracy and outcomes. So in the civil setting or a constitutional setting, if you think about the Dobbs judgment that's just been handed down, imagine that the Supreme Court, instead of giving 213 pages of reasons from a variety of well-educated judges, just gave an answer, which is there is no constitutional right to abortion. Imagine how upset people would be. They would yeah. say, this is an outrage. We need to know why. If you have litigants in a civil case who are fighting over money, if one of the parties loses, but they know why they lost because they got reasons from the judge, that's seen as a comfort. That's seen as a sense of, well, I got my day in court. The judge heard both sides. I can see that he heard both sides because there's a judgment that I can read. Oh, I can see you got it wrong, so I can take it to the appeal court. But it's not just about did it yield the correct results? It's was this a fair process and can I know it's a fair process? I mean, no. I don't think it's just a unique feature of South African law where we think that reasons matter. And we really do think reasons matter enormously. We investigate every small tribunal. You can take them on review if you think their reasons are bad, if there's rationality issues. And I would think that if in the civil setting, in the constitutional setting, we think that stuff matters, then it certainly ought to matter when you're putting someone behind bars. Yeah. And so this is why I think your argument only works for those that have accepted a jury system. One reason why you might accept a jury system is because you think it's good for the members of the jury, in the sense that they're doing a civic good, that they're participating in society, that they're learning something from the situation, even if it yields bad results. We say, ah, it's worth it. A couple of innocent people go to jail, a couple of guilty people get let off, but all these citizens are participating in our democracy and we think that's the good. That good doesn't happen in the AI case because the machine's not learning something in the way that a human being is learning something and participating. Yeah, so I think there's two separate parts to your comments here. Uh, one, I sort of resist. The other, I can say more about. So I guess I'm still not really convinced that there's that much hanging on whether it's a jury or a judge making the decision. I think either way, we can ask the question, are we willing to trade off opacity for accuracy? And I think whatever we say in the judge case, we would say in the jury case. Okay. The second point, though, I think you're opening up a whole big additional question, which is great, which is about fairness rather than about accuracy. But in fact, I think we would essentially replicate the exact same conversation that we just had about accuracy, only substituting fairness. Okay. In other words, starting with the AI algorithms. Okay. Suppose someone says we have to have algorithms that are transparent because even if we can prove that they're accurate, without them being transparent. We need them to be transparent so that we can know if they're fair, okay? And fairness is something we care about in addition to accuracy. I definitely agree. However, in the case of the algorithms, okay, I don't think it's actually true that opacity prevents us from determining whether they are producing results that are fair. So for example, since we talked about this in the first half of our conversation, if someone's worried that the algorithms are racially biased, all they need to know is all the inputs and all the outputs. And that's enough for them to figure out on any reasonable account of fairness, whether that has to do with greater accuracy for white applicants, white defendants than black defendants, or more false positives for one group and more false negatives for the other. All you need is the inputs and the outputs. You don't need the access to what went on in between. So 
Here's why that's important. Suppose what I've just said is true, okay? In the case of the predictive algorithms, you don't need transparency to figure out whether they're fair. Okay, suppose that's true. So we're not allowed to appeal to fairness as a justification for saying we need transparent algorithms if they're less accurate. Okay, now we jump over to the judge and jury sort of scenario. And again, I don't really think it matters whether it's the jury or the judge that's the ultimate decision maker, but let's stick with the judge. Okay, suppose it turns out that you're correct that with respect to accuracy, just figuring out whether or not the judge made the right decision, maybe it turns out we don't really know that we need transparency. But suppose you've got this good argument that shows with respect to procedural fairness, it's absolutely essential that there be an explanation given of the verdict. Okay. Then I want to say two things. The first I want, first thing I want to say is, okay, that's a very good reason for saying this very long-standing, hundreds of years tradition of a jury system is fundamentally a bad idea. Okay, that's great. Like, I mean, for, from a philosophical point of view, that's great. You've got like a really good argument for like a really bold conclusion. Okay. But the second thing I want to say is, right, when we were talking about accuracy, I was denying that there was a relevant difference between the jury case and the other cases. Okay. But now what I'm going to say is, no, well, what you've done here is you've introduced a relevant difference, right? What you've done precisely is established that there is a specific reason for demanding transparency in the judge case, okay, the judge has to be transparent in explaining the steps and reasoning in his or her decision, because you've established, if you have, that we need that transparency to guarantee fairness, okay? But that is not going to apply to the algorithms, right? If what I said earlier was correct, that you just need to know the inputs and the output to see whether they're racially imbalanced or whatever. So then again, I wouldn't have to deny at that point that there's that difference between verdicts and the other cases. And then the same would go for something like in the American system, right? When the Supreme Court issues a decision, that would be a reason to say, no, we demand just a, more than just a yes, no answer. Although I will say, last quick comment, I mean, part of me was thinking when you gave the example, like, again, so assume for the sake of the argument that there are correct answers to interpretive questions about the Constitution, okay? And assume there's a correct answer to the question of whether Roe versus Wade was correctly decided, if an omniscient being told us that we will get more accurate constitutional decisions about what rights should actually be protected if they were made opaquely, I certainly feel the force of like, ooh, that sounds terrible, because I think in the real world, that certainly would be the case. But if I really imagine that thought experiment, right, where the rights that we actually have really would be better protected if the Constitution were interpreted by an opaque body, and that it's when you make them publicly justify themselves that they pander to the public in all these objectionable ways and so forth. I don't know, at least in that case, part of me is leaning pretty strongly toward like, let's have the opaque decision-making. But again, I just want to emphasize, I'm not committed to that because the reason that you're giving here, I think wouldn't apply to the actual opaque algorithms that are being used in, again, bail, probation, parole, and sentencing decisions. 